you're very welcome back to another episode of Never Lick the Spoon. Last time we took a break from COVID trial developments at Imperial, and that's what we're going to be doing again. But if you are waiting to hear more about the vaccine, and well, let's face it, who isn't these days, then I will hopefully have some exciting news on the horizon regarding initial results from those all-important human trials very soon. So watch out for that when it appears. In this episode, we bring you some other life-enhancing and life-saving work carried out by researchers at Imperial. This time, we are looking at a fever that has plagued humanity since the time of the ancient Egyptians, and is still doing it to this day, and is still doing so to this day. Schistosomiasis, also known as snail fever, is a parasitic disease caused by infected parasites. It infects an estimated quarter of a billion people across 78 countries. But the vast majority of the infections occur in sub-Saharan Africa. There, it kills an estimated quarter of a million people annually and ranks second only to malaria as the world's most common parasitic disease. What's all the more tragic is that the disease is curable. A single dose of a drug called praziquantel is able to reduce infection and severity of symptoms. However, reinfection occurs quickly when people are re-exposed to infected water. Educational campaigns about the risks of exposure to contaminated water and improved water supply should, in theory at least, break the life cycle of the disease. Unfortunately, however, there is very limited information available regarding the effectiveness of previous water treatment. And there's no actual rapid means for detecting schistosomiasis in water samples, which makes assessing the risk and degree of contamination of a water supply very difficult. Researchers at Imperial, in collaboration with groups in Ethiopia, Tanzania and the Natural History Museum in London, aim to address these critical gaps in our understanding through a collaboration of water engineers, biologists, parasitologists and social scientists. Their hope is to guide the design of of sustainable water infrastructure for regions that are endemic with schistosomiasis. I spoke to two of these researchers, Dr. May Sewell, a postdoc research associate, and Lucinda Hazel, a PhD student. Both are in the Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering. I began by asking May, considering that we live in such a paradoxical world where in one part you can order all manner of food and drink online and get it delivered pretty much within a few minutes, just how many people in 2020 still do not have access to the most basic essentials of life? Safe drinking water. About 2 billion do not have access to safe drinking water. And that's when water is completely free from any contamination at all from feces. And about 780 million people do not have access to even an improved source of drinking water at the moment. But that's very good because 90% of the people have access to water compared to sanitation. Sanitation was one of the worst um, targets that was not achieved for the SDG and is still not looking very hopeful. About 37% of the population of the world do not have access, yeah, about one in three, access to adequate sanitation. And about 700 still openly defecate 
in the open, you know, they still use the fields to defecate. So mm -hmm. sanitation has just had a woeful statistic in terms of people's access to adequate sanitation. At the moment, um, the rate at which we're going probably until about 2050 before the SDG will be achieved. SDGs, Sustainable Development Goals, are the UN's blueprint to address global challenges such as poverty, inequality and climate change. But, as Maya points out, the SDG relating to sanitation, which is for everyone to have adequate sanitation by the year 2030. As, well, basic as this might sound, looking at our track record, it doesn't look too promising that this will be met. From 1990 to 2015, the amount of people that had access to adequate sanitation did drop, but by the barest of margins, estimates think between 5 and 10%. And also, as a side note, we're talking only about what's called improved sanitation, defined as any facility that ensures the separation of human excreta from human contact. One of the most shocking facts that May highlighted is that the lack of sanitation means that about 700 million people living today openly defecate. And it is this prevalence of open defecation that allows this devastating parasite to survive and thrive, as Lucinda explains. So it's, um, it's a parasitic worm that lives in the intestines or bladder of humans. And they are constantly laying eggs. And the eggs migrate around your body and some are passed in your urine and feces and some remain in your body and it's the ones that remain in your body that actually cause the most damage because they initiate an immune response um, which causes things like enlargement of the spleen and things like that but one of the really common symptoms is especially if you have if you have the disease that lives in your bladder is blood in your urine and that's what's been referenced back in Egyptian times of people talking about blood in their urine and it's from this disease so it's been around for thousands of years and so yeah the eggs are passed and if someone defecates into a water body then the eggs will hatch into what's called myricidia and this is a snail infective sna stage so the myricidia hunt out aquatic snails which are an intermediate host and they penetrate the host and then once inside the snail they reproduce asexually to produce cercari which is shed from the snail and that's the human infective stage so it has quite a complicated life cycle and that's one of the reasons why it's actually quite a difficult disease to eradicate because it's dependent on so many different things um, and because of the two hosts and things like that. That sounds pretty horrendous um, but how, how does the worm enter the body? One of the main issues with it is the fact that you don't actually need to drink water to get the disease. You get it through skin contact. So the larvae of the parasite burrow through your skin. Ooh. So even though people may be boiling water to drink, which is a common treatment method for people who don't have access to improved water supplies, they're doing their laundry, they're bathing in contaminated water every day. So we're looking at ways that people can collect water and then treat it to get rid of the larvae, so to prevent infection. And... So I'm looking at UV disinfection. Then we're also looking at chlorination, filtration, and also water storage, because for this particular disease, the larvae actually die if they don't find a human to infect. So you store it for, we think, about 48 hours, depending on the temperature, and then they can die. So that's obviously a very cheap way of treating the water. Um, but the UV disinfection that I'm 
looking at is using a quite a new technology, which is um, ultraviolet LEDs. So very similar to the LEDs that are now sort of in everyday life. And the benefits of this is obviously that they're very tiny. Um, they can be run off battery or solar power. Um, and they can be sort of fitted into, say, a bottle cap for treatment and things like that. So they can be used in quite an innovative way, whereas traditional UV treatment uses big mercury lamps, which contain mercury, which is toxic. And um, they're also made out of quartz. So they are very fragile and they need um, constant power and all things like that. So, yeah, so I'm looking at using this technology um, for that. Taking an anti-worming drug, as we said before, has been shown to be very effective against schistosomiasis. However, there's nothing to stop people from then going on to being reinfected later. In fact, people are commonly given drugs once or twice a year to keep the infection rate low, but this still is not enough to eradicate the disease. Although infection rates can be low in some places, things like hotspots and people failing to take medication means that the disease keeps coming back year by year. It's because of this that researchers like May and Lucinda have started looking to other methods to combat the disease. One way is changing people's perception. It turns out that a lot of projects that try and combat schistosomiasis fail because of human behaviour, either with operating and maintaining clean water facilities or simply that people just don't use the clean water facilities. Considering that schistosomiasis can be picked up by infected water simply by contact with the skin, it is increasingly seen as important to change public attitude to get more and more people using these sanitation facilities. So we want to change people's behaviour. There are many reasons why people go, in contact, go into contact with water. It could be occupational, it could be um, for leisure, and children especially, and adolescents go out to swim in the contaminated sources of water, or it could be for collecting basic um, necessity water use in the home. So we're trying to change people's perception and attitude towards water, especially when they've been provided an alternative clean source to use. So they should be able to stop going into the contaminated source. We've tried to look at ways that we can encourage them to change behavior. We have used different techniques. We have used community members in trying to spread out the message. We have used theatre, acting using role play to send out the message to the people in the communities. Being African myself, I know how much storytelling plays a part in moral lessons. So hopefully when people use members of their community, um, when they see members of the, their community involved in role play, that sends out the message across to them. We are um, hoping that that will resonate better with them and help them to understand the importance of avoiding um, contact with contaminated water. We're also using ch school children in, in many water sanitation and hygiene projects, which is WASH. Um, school children are used as agents of change. And we also believe school children could be used as agents of change in this wiser project. So we have formed schistosomiasis clubs in many of the schools that are in the communities that we work with. And um, those children are doing a lot. They're spreading out the message. They're using flyers. They're talking at assemblies. They're going to homes. They're speaking to grandmothers, to grandfathers, to their parents. And many people are becoming more aware of the disease itself and the mode of transmission. And hopefully, very soon, they'll be able to understand and change their behavior fully from contacting water once the alternative source of water has been provided to them.
Although being a fiendishly difficult disease to completely eradicate, there have been past successes. In St. Lucia in the 70s, providing clean wash stations for laundry completely removed the disease from the Caribbean island. Furthermore, it is hoped that the combined approach of behaviour change and improved sanitation technology will yield better results. And in the instances where it does work, it has the potential to bring huge benefits to the community. Um, just like um, Lucinda has explained, the morbidity is what the problem is. What is the main problem with amphibiosomiasis, and it also causes anemia, a malnutrition, stunted growth in children, and extended stomach from the um, damage it does to the spleen as well. So it um, reduces the quality of life, basically and it stops children from being able to progress as they would normally. It helps, it um, stunts their growth and it affects them mentally in their performance in school. They've done studies where they have looked at children when they have been treated and the effect it has on their learning outcome in school. And it, it's just a huge percentage to see the change it makes in the life of children when they've been treated and they're well and healthy compared to when they're sick. and um, the loss of man hours as well, when people are sick and they're down, they can't contribute to the household income. So economically, people have lost their source of income for a certain period of time, and it makes them trapped. It just keeps them trapped in that circle of poverty. Um, Shisosomiasis and other neglected tropical diseases are generally diseases of poverty. So if people um, have those diseases, just kinds of entraps them more and more in that circle of um, poverty without being able to get out of it. But with the drugs, it improves their quality of life for a certain period. But once they get back into the water, they become reinfected. And at a certain point in time, they become exacerbated. They don't want to take the drugs anymore because of the side effects and for some other reasons that um, are local. For uh, Probably it could be rumors of what the drugs do to them or what it's the reason why they're being given the drugs. So most people at the end of the day refuse to take the drugs completely. And it's at this time that you look at the alternative solutions being what will cure and uh, what will eliminate the disease. And that's the water, provision of water, sanitation as well, equally very important, universal coverage. It has shown that when one person, just one person has a disease, that person is enough to um, contaminate a whole community. All it takes is for that person's feces or urine to be washed into the main source of water, and then the disease keeps going on. So once you have universal coverage of sanitation and adequate access to water, people are more likely to use those sources of water and sanitation instead of going out to defecate in the open or to urinate out on the fields and it being washed and polluting the water sources again. And that was May Sewell and Lucinda Hazel speaking to me there. If you want to find out more about their work and the work of their colleagues, they are part of a project called WISER, Water Infrastructure for Schistosomiasis Endemic Regions. It's also worth pointing out that their very important work is funded by UK Research and Innovation through their Global Challenges Research Fund, and we wish them all the best. Well, that's your lot for another episode of Never Lick the Spoon. As I said in my introduction, next time I'm hoping to bring you some initial hot-off-the-shelf findings of how the Imperial College COVID vaccine has been performing in human trials. 
So until then, all that's left for me to say is thank you for listening. And as always, never lick the spoon.